0: morning. As We continue our study in the book of Jonah. If you want to follow along? I'm reading from the uh, English Standard Version beginning at verse 17 of chapter 1 and then we'll read through chapter 2. Um, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up. You brought my life from the pit. O oh, Lord my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regards to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish. And it vomited Jonah out on the dry land.
1: Thank you, Charlie. Good morning. In 1891, the whaling ship, the Star of the East, went on a voyage, and the ship got down to around the Falkland Islands, just is off the coast of Argentina, and they spotted a sperm whale. And so they sent two the little boats out to get the whale. The first boat was able to spear the spear the whale, the harpoon. The second boat, however, in its efforts to harpoon the whale, capsized. And one of, the, one of the men drowned, and the other was missing. Well, eventually they were able to get this whale, pull it to the ship. The next morning began the process of dismembering it. and They removed the stomach and hoisted the stomach onto the deck. And they opened the stomach, <clears throat> and they found the man unconscious but completely alive the story that uh, is the subject of this morning's sermon the account i shouldn't say story the account is, is perhaps one of the most universally known accounts in all the bible it's one of those few stories that people really don't know the bible that well are familiar with it it's just part of our culture from from pinocchio to veggie tales to to Finding Nemo, it, it's, it's become part of a culture. And, and I don't know if that's just because of it, it's a fascinating concept. You know, was it the questions, all the questions, right? Did this really happen? Was it a shark? Was it a whale? <clears throat> How did he live inside? How did he survive inside the whale? All those questions become part of the discussion. And tend to make this passage results in the focus being on the great fish, And not so much the great God at work. The focus is thinking that the miracle is somehow the fish. When in fact the real miracle miracle is happening inside the man. And so it's the miracle inside the man that I want to talk about this morning. But before we do that, I do want to make a couple of comments, observations in terms of foundation. I'm really big on foundation apologetics and really understanding logically why it is that I can put great confidence in this passage of scripture why I can rely upon it just so just a couple of comments in regards to apologetics one would be that there's nothing in the within the four corners of the book of Jonah to suggest that what we are reading is anything other than a record of an historical account of something. That happened. There's absolutely nothing within the four corners of the book to suggest that this is allegory, parable, anything like that. In fact, Jonah is also mentioned elsewhere in scripture. He is in the historical books. I think it's the second book of the Kings. As he's mentioned as a prophet, as a man that existed <clears throat> in a prophet to the ten northern tribes of Israel before they were taken away by Syria. So he was an historical person. In terms of science, I already told the story about the, the uh, Star of the East whaling ship. <clears throat> There's nothing scientifically impossible about what happens to Jonah. In fact, scientists say that the the average the mouth size of a sperm whale is so big that it's, it's similar to the size of a room that you might find <clears throat> in, in a typical house. And lastly, <clears throat> I think about the words of Jesus. Uh, Jesus referred to the account of Jonah in Matthew when he was dialoguing with the Pharisees. He said, if you're looking for a sign, the sign you'll get is the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man spend three, three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. <clears throat> and so it would not have made any sense for, for Jesus to make that reference If he didn't believe that the account of Jonah was something that really happened. Because, obviously, his death and burial was going to be something that really happened. And when Jesus gives authority to passages in the Old Testament, I think that's something we should pay very close attention to. Jesus himself (laughs) said very clearly, "I did not come to... Do away with the law of the prophets. I came to fulfill them. To give more meaning to them. So when the, when the one who existed before the foundations of the earth were created. Gives authority to a book. That's really pretty much all the apologetics that we need. Which takes us to <clears throat> the reality of Jonah inside this whale, this big fish. And admittedly, it is a, it's a hard thing to get your brain around. It's understandable why you would get <clears throat> focused on how comfortable was it for him in there, and how did he breathe, was it dark, and, and all those things. But it, interestingly enough, <clears throat> Jonah doesn't bother to talk about any of that. It, it kind of reminds me, imagine if Neil Armstrong would come back from the moon, and all he talked about was... The conversation you have with God up there, and doesn't tell any of us about you know how cold was it and how did the dirt feel in your fingers and all those things, so but Jonah just goes straight to <clears throat> his dialogue with God inside the fish, and he makes it very he, I think he almost uses the tenses. You notice in the beginning of first one he he goes from talking in the third person to the first person, and he goes from talking. <clears throat> in the present tense, to the past tense, that Jonah said this inside the fish. So it's almost like he's going out of his way with his use of the language to, make, to put us in there with him, to make it clear that he's talking about a spiritual mental process, not something that he reflected upon afterwards and realized, but a process that he actually went through inside the belly of the fish, Jonah was dialoguing with God, and God changed his heart there inside the fish. Jonah recognized that the Lord had caused this to happen to him, that the Lord had heard his cry, and that the Lord had been merciful and faithful to him. So what happened? How did this happen? Was this... Was this just an emotional response by Jonah? Was, it, was he a man of incredible mental discipline? Was this a, a, a battle of the will and he just had incredible willpower to be able to change his thinking this way? We know <coughs> it wasn't because he had a sponsor in there with him. He was in there by himself. So there wasn't anybody else, another person in there coaching him, giving him counsel. Was this just, this wasn't just a chance thing that happened but i think to answer to that there are clues in the text itself verses two through seven which is his prayer and those clues are that and it may not be obvious to you just reading the text but each one of those verses two through seven are either a direct quotation of a verse from the psalms or a very close reference to one of the psalms and I've put those references in the, in the outline that's in the uh, bulletin. And I'm not, I am not going to go through them one by one. But I have given you the connections to verse 2 through 7. And, and what Psalms that that's a reference to or a direct quote from. And I would encourage you to, to spend some time making that comparison. I think you'll find it interesting. But just as some, some examples. <clears throat> His reference to crying from the depths of Sheol. And this may depend on what your actual translation is. I think I'm reading from the NIV here. Crying from the depths of Sheol. That's a direct quote from a a psalm. The reference to the breakers and billows coming over his head. That comes from the psalms. Looking to the Lord in his holy temple. He's quoting the psalms there. The Lord brings life from the pit. Again, either a reference or a direct, direct quote from one of the psalms. So, I think the takeaway here... And one of the first things I think it's important for us to take away from this is that Jonah's revival was from him falling back on memorized scripture. Jonah had knew the word of God, and in his low point, that's what he fell back on. His meditation, this is something that Donald Whitney in his book Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life talks about. His meditation and his prayer was fueled... By his memorization of the word of God. And in Donald Whitney's book about spiritual disciplines, he, he kind of gives an interesting perspective to it. The importance of scripture memory in those moments when we need to be able to pray and we need to meditate. He says, and Whitney talks about the fact that each verse we memorize is like a, is like a, a sword that we can polish and have in our arsenal. Said the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit, but the Holy Spirit cannot give you a weapon you have not stored in the armory of your mind. Imagine yourself in the midst of a decision and needing guidance, or struggling with a difficult temptation and needing victory. The Holy Spirit rushes to your mental arsenal, flings open the door, but all he finds is a John 316 and a Genesis 1.1. Those are great swords. Whitney says, but they're not made for every battle. And I think that's pretty good. It's interesting perspective on it, but it's something to remember. That Jonah's prayers and his meditation and his revival was fueled by God's word. He could again see God for all of his his attributes, his sovereignty, his loving kindness, his omniscience. Because remember where Jonah was at. Think about the wrong thinking Jonah had about God. First, it says several times in chapter 1 that he thought he could flee from the presence of God. He clearly did not want to follow God's directive to him that he go to Nineveh. He didn't want to obey God that way. He certainly didn't share God's concern, God's holiness and his concern for the serious sin problem that Nineveh had. And although he may have recognized that God was a God of grace and loving kindness, he certainly didn't really want to participate in that with God. His prayer restored his right thinking about God because it was fueled and based on the word of God. And that gave rise from his prayer to this statement he makes in verse 8. He goes from a prayer... To an affirmative statement that I want to spend some time on, the rest, of, the rest of our time on, because I think it's a very important, profound statement. And it's expressed a number of different ways depending on your translation. Verse 8, one translation mine in the NASB says, Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. Then one NIV I found, in actually Boyce's commentary, said that those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And then on my phone, the NIV says, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. And for reasons we'll get into, I think that's the one I think that best explains it for us. What Charlie just read, Charlie, I think what you read was, those who pay regard to worthless idols forsake the hope of steadfast love. So that's another way it's expressed. But it's a very profound statement. And why does Jonah reach this conclusion? He's in the whale and suddenly praying and boom, he says this. And here's just the thought I had. And I could be wrong about this, but it's something that jumped off the page of me as I was studying this. That maybe this is what's going on. That clearly Jonah, before, didn't want to go to Nineveh. And maybe it's because he just didn't have a heart from them yet. And he didn't have that. Motto, that message, that catchphrase, that thing that he felt he could say from his heart to them. And maybe, just maybe, from what he experienced, realizing from his meditation, my thinking about God was all wrong. I really had some false thinking about God. And maybe that doesn't make me as different from the Ninevites as I thought I was. And maybe that's it. Maybe he's going, okay, I get this message now because i've experienced it in my own way and 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 i this is the message this is the message i need to bring to them just the thought that's this seems like if the timing right after that he's expelled from the whale and he's on to nineveh so that's and right after that he says that which i vowed i shall repay so it just seemed to me that maybe this is it you know sometimes before you do something you have to have that reason that 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 mission statement and so maybe that's what this was for him but what's the statement mean <clears throat> what does it mean for us especially in reference to idols idols interesting enough is and false idols is the struggle that occurs for the people of god throughout the old testament it's the recurring theme it's the recurring achilles heel it begins as far back as Abram, before he was called Abraham. God calls Abram out of Ur. And at the time, people don't realize this, Abram was very much involved in idolatry and pagan worship. That was the life Abram lived before Yahweh called Abram out of Ur. <clears throat> Just two generations later, Rachel, who was Abram, the wife of Abram's grandson, Jacob... She gets caught. They're leaving her father Laban's house. And what does she get caught with? She stole the household idols from Laban, right? So it isn't as if Abram said, okay, God, I'm going to Ur, and then the idol worship is just a thing of the past. It's, it's something that they're still trying to work out, right? It's still there two generations later. Then they grow into a nation. They spend 400 years in bondage in exodus. Does it go away? Certainly not. They, get, they experience the exodus. They experience liberation from Egypt, from slavery. Does it go away? Certainly not. At the very same time Moses is getting the Ten Commandments, calf worship, idolatry. It's still a struggle for them. And it's such an important issue for God. And it's such, a, it's such an important issue for God that it's the basis, the subject matter, of the first two Commandments, right? Commandment number one, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Commandment number two, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images. And if there is any doubt that this was a serious concern for God, an important issue, God removes any doubt because after these two commandments, he actually explains to Moses why he's giving him those two commandments. What does he say? He says, for the Lord, we, we, we just sung, the last song, we sung, he is jealous for me, right? You sung that? God says to Moses, for the Lord thy God is a jealous God. Now, I always thought that was the correct, that was the only translation of that, even when I had to memorize the Ten Commandments when I was a little kid. For the Lord thy God is a jealous God. But when you actually read the notes, another way that's translated is more direct. He says... My name is jealous. My name, I mean, that's not something we think about God saying. We think of other names, Yahweh, El Shaddai, El Alion, all the different names of God. But that's not always the first one we think of. But in that moment, that's actually what he says to Moses. My name is jealous. That's how strong God felt about the problem of idolatry. Why, what's, what's his problem with idols? Why is he so, why is he so concerned about it? And, and, and why, are, why is man so susceptible to clinging to idols? And those two questions kind of are one and the same, right? They kind of have to be answered together because to answer one is sort of to explain the other. And the person who does the best job of explaining it, God's problem with idols, and our susceptibility to idols, is Paul... In, in Romans 1, specifically, verses 18 to 20. Paul explains the process. He basically said, it starts, God has revealed himself in nature. All of his invisible qualities, he's revealed. His sovereignty, his holiness, his omniscience, his immutability. Those things are all well revealed to man. And what does man do? Paul says, we suppress the truth. We don't honor God for who he is in all these ways. And we don't thank him for, all, for who he is in all these ways. And Paul says that's precisely what leads to idolatry. <clears throat> Man in his natural state does not like these things about God. Now we don't like to think that, but that's our natural state. Is that we actually don't like those things about God. In our natural state, we resist and reject his sovereignty because that negates our control and our own autonomy. We don't like his holiness because that opposes and condemns our sin. We don't like his omniscience because that's a big one, because that really terrifies us, because what's the one thing we're all afraid of? Exposure, right? And we don't like his immutability, which means... The fact that God will never change in all the other ways. He will never change in his sovereignty and his holiness and his omniscience. And and we actually don't like that either. It's kind of one of the examples I read was it's kind of like if you knew your boss was going to be retiring in a year and he was really strict, you may be more willing to tolerate that because you know it won't be there forever. If you've ever had a... I remember having a really strict teacher, I think, in fourth grade... But I knew it was over in June, right? But if I was told then, you know what? You know, that strict teacher you have, she's going to be your teacher until you're 20. I mean, you'd, I think you'd start resenting that about her a little bit more. But that, And that's kind of how we are to God. His immutability even bothers us because we know he's not going to change in any of the other ways. So, now I was at... Jeff's house yesterday, and I was actually at Mike Hampton's house. And I didn't see any idols in their house. I wasn't looking, but I assumed there weren't any. And I can't explain, I'm not an anthropologist or sociologist, so I can't explain why in our culture, our suppression of the truth about God, our resistance to the attributes of God, don't manifest themselves in that way. Why it manifested itself in idol worship for the Israelites I don't know. That's the way it manifests itself. Well, how does it manifest itself for us? How does our suppression of the truth about God in our lives kind of come out in the wash? What do we create? We create private spaces, right? We create rooms. We create closets. We create monuments to ourselves. We create belief systems we create in our own lives corners where we convince ourselves that God or some part of God, some attribute of God isn't there. Maybe it's his holiness when it comes to a relationship we're in or our computer or our cable bill or just our thought life. Maybe, maybe it's his sovereignty when it comes to our bank account or our calendar. Maybe it's his omniscience simply, maybe it's just a matter of simply living as if God's not with us Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and he doesn't see everything we do. Maybe it's just living in that kind of fog, where during the work week, he's kind of off waiting for me to show up again on Sunday. But when we do that, it's a serious issue, because when we do that, we are essentially worshiping a false god of our own creation. And it's not much different than idolatry. And I think it creeps up on us very easily. And I was given a really a good reminder of that earlier this summer. And I've got my, my sister and her husband here today. And, and they know a little bit about this story. But, but I'll tell this. Some, some of you know that I have a cousin on the East Coast who I've been sharing since last summer. Talking to her about spiritual things and Christianity and sharing things with her and, in June, she's, she's raw. My sister's here. She knows she said she, that this cousin is raw. I mean, she is every bit New Jersey. And so that, some of that showed up in some things that she would post on Facebook. Well, I took the liberty one day of, now, I shouldn't have, you don't text things like this. That's one, another lesson for another day. I shouldn't have done this by text. But I sent her a text that said, <laughs> gently, you know, if you're going to call yourself a follower of the Jewish carpenter, you might want to think about putting a filter on some of the things that you put on Facebook. I tried to be nice about it, but I did want to make the point humorously. Well, it wasn't really received very well. Not at all. And and I even tried apologizing, and it just wasn't received very well. In fact, pretty poorly. She She decided to basically defriend not only me, but pretty much all of our family out here that's Christian. And I remember... <clears throat> kind of chuckling at that and, and being pretty cynical and thinking, you know, what's she thinking? You know, what's she going to do? Defriend God? You know, can you, you can't defriend God. So what's she thinking? And, and, but the cold shower I got came later that night because the very same day of all that, we were at my, um, my nephew who's here, his graduation, UC San Diego. And so at the end of that, I had to go to a work party that night. And I was late because I was at the graduation. And when I got to this work party, dinner party, the conversation had already kind of deteriorated. And, and whether it's because I was tired or lazy, I, I really, and I'm, con- I'm in, in confessing this, that I really did very little to get the conversation to a better place. In fact, if anything, I pretty much just got on the train and went along for the ride. And I and I told Jeff about this the very next day in church because I didn't feel very good about it. But it was a it was a great splash in the face for me because it was a real reminder in my cynicism to my to my cousin and ha ha, did ha, she think she could do defriend God, I got the great reminder that we all kind of defriend God. We all have our corners where we do that, don't we? We all have we all have these corners where we try to think that God's not involved in that part of our life. And it might be something as subtle as that thing that you're anxious about, that you don't want to surrender to God, that thing that you just love worrying about. Even that is a form of it, because you're not recognizing his sovereignty when it comes to that that thing. But when we consistently do that, when we consistently substitute the worship of God in all of his attributes (coughs) with our own creation... It is perilously close, very similar to idol worship. We cling, I'm reading this because I wrote it down. I want to get it right. We cling to false idols whenever we fall back to these places, closets, rooms, boxes, belief systems that don't embrace all that God is. And Jonah says that when we do that, we forfeit or turn away from God's loving kindness, God's grace. Why is that? Why is that? Well, I think one reason is that until we fully embrace all that God is in all of his attributes, we really can't understand our desperate need for grace. It's, it's, It's Isaiah's experience. The prophet Isaiah, here we're talking about prophet Jonah who tried to flee from the presence of the Lord. Isaiah's experience as a prophet was jump-started by a direct presence of the Lord experience. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees the Lord seated on the throne in his temple. He sees the Lord in all of his attributes, in all of his glory. He sees the Lord for all he is... And what's his response? Woe is me. I'm ruined. Desperately need grace. And that's what jumpstarts Isaiah in his ministry. But man in his natural state, when we're in our natural state, we really don't experience that. Because we resist. And we fight against the truth about God. And what do we do? We separate And remove ourselves from that. Like Jonah. Jonah tried to flee from the presence of the Lord. But the problem is that when we remove ourselves from those things about God that we can't deal with. We also remove ourselves from God's loving kindness and his grace. Because one thing that we can certainly say. Is that for those who embrace God for all he is. And accept the salvation he's provided through his son, grace is certain. Just like Paul said, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we resist his immutability, for example, we miss the fact that he's also immutable in his loving kindness, right? He's not just immutable in his holiness or his omniscience, but he's also immutable. In his loving kindness. And I read this verse. At the end last week. And I'll read it again. Because I think it's a great passage. In Exodus 34. The Lord says. Again. When Moses asked. If he could see the Lord. The Lord says yes. But in passing through Moses. The Lord says. The Lord. The Lord God. Compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger. And abounding in loving kindness. And truth. Now that's. Think about it, that's the Lord's own resume, right? That's the resume that he gives Moses. Moses, if you don't remember anything else about me, remember this. Here's my tagline. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. He's immutable that way too, but if we don't want to accept the other ways in which he's immutable, we can easily miss this. The other verse I love that kind of speaks to this is Psalm 110. One ten verse four, Psalm 110 is one of those messianic psalms. And it's the psalm when, uh, when the Lord speaks of my son seated at my right hand in Melchizedek. And it's a messianic psalm. And in verse 4, the Lord says this, talking about himself. And I love the significance of this verse. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now what he's talking about there is he's talking about his son who's the messiah who will forever be our priest who will forever be our mediator. He's not going to change his mind when it comes to that. Now that's a that's a truth about God that I think sometimes we kind of take for granted. I mean if you think about it there's really nothing logically that would prevent the existence of an all-powerful creator who's holy and omniscient but reserves the right to change the rules from time to time, right? I mean, we, we are blessed to have a God who is also immutable in his loving kindness and can say, I'm providing this way of salvation and I'm not changing my mind that I'm providing for salvation this way. When we cling to our closets and our boxes and our false thinking about God, we are less likely to recognize on an ongoing basis our need for grace from a God who is immutable in his loving kindness. The second reason why those who cling to false idols forfeit or turn away from God's grace Is that when we are in those places, we are less likely to see God's grace at work in our life. And that's why I like the the use of turn away from God's grace rather than forfeit. Because when I think of forfeit, I think of sports. I think of you lose, something's taken away from you because you did something wrong. and, And somebody comes along and takes something that you had... I don't think you can think about God that way. God's God's grace in our life continues. And when we fall away from him, he doesn't decide to change and take something away from us. I think it's better to think of it in terms of when we stop recognizing God for all he is and worship false god, can I say that? We lose the ability to see the ongoing grace that God provides. It's not that God takes away something he was giving. We turn away as in we are no longer to see. So I think turn away from God's grace. Is a better way to look at it than this idea of forfeit. We turn away from the grace that's available to us. We stop seeing it. And I'll, I'll give a little, a little example that this week. And I'm not picking on my daughter but I guess I can uh, Wednesday this week, I had a meeting in the office. It was supposed to start about noon. I was expecting to go to And about three minutes before noon, my daughter calls me and she's in a panic. She's at her mom's house. She's in a panic. And she says, A water main broke and there's water everywhere and we don't know how to turn the water off. She didn't use the word water main. She just said pipe. And I th- when I hear pipe, I think pipe. I think water main burst, and there's water in the street, and I don't, we don't know how to turn the water off, and our water bill's going to go through the roof. Help? And, okay. Get in the car. She, fortunately, she doesn't live that far from my work. Go over there to see what's going on. Well, it turned out that it wasn't quite that. It was a PVC pipe that comes out of the ground, you know, a land irrigation pipe, that was standing up out of the ground, and somehow the hose got wrapped around it and, and re-yanked on the hose, and it broke. So there's water coming up. From the PVC pipe, and and I anybody who knows me knows I am not Mister Fix it at all. But even I understood that how to change how to turn that water off. You just go over to the house and there's that lever that you crank and turn the water off. Well, because of the timing of all this, and Evan Ray thought I was a hero. I mean, she just was oh thank you, Daddy, and I'm like okay, well you know. And as I was driving back to work, I was kind of chuckling because. I didn't really do that much, but in that moment, she thought I was the greatest thing since sliced bread. She thought I was a hero. And it was really cool because, you know, when you have a teenage daughter, it was, it, you'll take any of those moments you can get, right? And so it may be the last one, and I may not, have, but I'll take it. But here's, my, but, he, but here's my point, and I was blessed by it, and it was, it was a nice little kick to my day that, hey, my daughter thinks I'm pretty great right now. But here's, here's, here's what I, the point I wanted to make, is that in another point in my life, that would have been a, just an annoying thing that disrupted my day. That would have just been, well, that was a big waste of my time. And, you know, what, come on, I now missed the first 25 minutes of my meeting for that. But fortunately in that moment, it was a moment, I'm not always this way, but at least that was a moment when I'm thinking about what God's doing in my life. And so I was able to look at it as, hey, that's pretty cool. God decided that I'm having a busy week, a lot going on. God decided to give me the little treat of that. That, that was just so that I could go over there and have, and have her express love for me. And that's an example of what I'm talking about. Is that's, That could have happened, right? That could have happened five years ago. And if I'm, my heart's in a different place, I would have missed it. But... When when you recognize God involved in everything, then you can see his grace in something as, as insignificant as that. When we cling to our false thinking about God, we turn away from his loving kindness. First, because we lose the ability to recognize our need for it. And second, because our false thinking clouds our ability to see God's grace at work. So how do we wrap this up? And I, I will apologize that <laughs> I tend to do these outlines and sort of stick to them and sort of don't. I guess I didn't do too bad today. But <laughs> Jonah was a missionary, right? And we want to be missional people. So what do we take away from this? Jonah's mission had been derailed. And what got it back? What got him restored? How are we quickened and I put in the I see what quickens us in our mission, what slows us in our mission. That's those are really two different ways of discussing the same thing, right? So I'll express it positively. I use the word "quicken" and here, how are we propelled forward in our mission? I think the first one is, and we talked about this, from a, a life of prayer and meditation that is based on firmly based on and fueled. By the word of God would be one thing that propels us forward. And second is repentance and rejection of the false places. The false boxes and places. The false thinking. The false beliefs that lead to essentially worshipping a false God. And right thinking that embraces all God. All of God in all of his attributes. So that we live more and more in a, as people... That are constantly recognizing our need, our desperate need for grace, and we are co- we are much more. We're growing in our ability to see God's loving kindness, even in the tough places, right? Even in our own belly of the fish moments. Let's pray. We're gonna, I'm gonna pray, and then Chuck Carota is gonna go come forward, and he's going to lead us. And communion. Heavenly Father. We just thank you for this. uh, The account of Jonah. The prophet Jonah. How you used him in such a unique way. We thank you this morning. For the reminder that. um, We can so easily. Fall away. And fall into worshiping. A false God. To not right thinking about you. That in our sinful state, we resist all the things about you, all of your attributes. But we thank you, Lord, that you have given us the word of God to revive us, to pray on and meditate through and be propelled forward in the things that you have given us to do. Help us to meditate on who you are and resist the temptation to cling to false things, to cling to false sources of comfort, to cling to false beliefs about you, to cling to false needs, and to embrace you in all of your attributes and be able to see and experience fully your grace and loving kindness in our lives as we go forward to do those things that you've given us to do for your kingdom. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.